in our present cultural moment, there's this thing called wokeism that um, gets bandied around a lot, and it's one of those terms that some people think means nothing, and a lot of people think is the core issue concerning everything right now. It didn't come out of thin air. Uh, the ideology uh, around it has been doing what it's done for decades, if not centuries, depending on how far you want to go back. I trace it down to progressivism at the end of the 19th century. Uh, this is not a historical podcast, although I do do some history. My primary concern is with the tradition of Methodism and how it can recover from all the um, damage done to it over the last couple of centuries in Western society and in particular America. So one of the things I've known I need to do for a while is talk to people in other denominations about the ideology and beliefs that have wreaked havoc in Methodism, because the thing is that whether or not you want to call it progressivism, wokeism, liberalism, this, this notion that we can and should do better than those in the past, that we know better, that we're climbing towards a, a zenith in history, that we've started a new chapter uh, with science and technology and, and modern um, uh, things. All of that has been doing what it does, not just in Methodism, but in lots of different traditions around the West. And so I've talked some about non-Western traditions today that are uh, rejecting, rebuking this, but I think um, I'm going to start a series. In fact, this might be the inaugural episode of this series where I'm consulting voices from other denominations talking about how it is that wokeism, progressivism has operated in those spheres. And in particular, I want to hear the stories of um, how it is that, that these long-standing Protestant traditions got torn apart but also how it is that right-leaning breakaways are also still fighting this battle, how hard it is to remain uh, contained and keep that hostile ideology out. So to that end, uh, my first guest today is Ryan Turnipseed. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. You are an interesting person. I'm going to let you speak for yourself, but I think uh, interesting things for the audience to know. First off, you come from the Missouri Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is the conservative faction of Lutheranism. Um, I wouldn't say, faction's not the right word, but the, it is a conservative, ostensibly, denomination of Lutheranism. You work for the Mises Institute. You're only 20 years old. Affiliated with them. Okay, you're affiliated yeah. with them. Okay, that, so there are a lot of details around yeah. you. I know some of uh, you've gotten in trouble for speaking with clarity about theological, ideological uh, drift in the LCMS. We're going to refer to LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, and then the UMC, which I have left the United Methodist Church. I'm now a global Methodist pastor, but my selfish interest is learning from other traditions to help my new tradition flourish and do well. So um, how about we start with a, uh, a bio on you? Where do you come from, um, and then uh, where are you going? Well, um, I, I don't know how far back you want me to go exactly. Um, I was raised a Southern Baptist uh, in North Central Oklahoma because, um, as you and I are both aware, Oklahoma is a heavily Baptist uh, territory. Mm -hmm. um, it's just the culture, I suppose. Um, and that was what I was until about probably my sophomore year of high school um, when I uh, became, my family and I became a Lutheran. Um, up until that point, up until high school, I was going to a Lutheran private school, but I was never a Lutheran during that entire period. I was still a, a very much a Baptist during that whole upbringing. Um, so became a Lutheran sophomore year of high school. My family did as well. 
um, my dad first and then my mom. Um, and we, uh, liked the, uh, we liked the theology behind it. We liked how everything was organized, um, thought that it was definitely one of the more saner churches around. Uh, it was what we thought when, whenever we went into it, um, had good pastors. Um, so everything was looking very nice. Um, also, when I was in high school, I was uh, coming across the sort of a, a right-leaning libertarian sphere, which would be that Mises Institute connection that you talked about mm-hmm. earlier. Um, they print a lot of books. They have a lot of free books online that I was drawn to. Um, so I was in both of those two things going through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just to skip ahead, not to dwell on that too much, um, earlier this year um, in January, I believe it was the 21st of January, um, having been a Lutheran at that point for a few years, that for a few years, and your father's a, an elder, and my father became an elder, okay. right? And uh, my whole family was basically just heavily involved in the church, mm-hmm. um, and I was in a, a group chat with a few friends. Um, I was told that they were releasing a new annotated edition of Luther's Large Catechism, which for yeah, explain to a yeah. non-Lutheran yeah. audience how big a deal this particular publication right. is. So uh, the thing that makes someone a Lutheran, at least in any real sense, other than like cultural, mm-hmm. uh, you'll you'll see like evangelical Lutheran church in America where they where they're basically having like Satanist rituals on the on the altar and all this other stuff. Don't really think they're Lutheran uh, just because they have the word in the name. Uh, so the thing that makes someone like really a Lutheran is that you subscribe to the Lutheran confessions. Um, these were the documents uh, describing the Lutheran or the Christian faith um, from this Lutheran perspective, mm-hmm. dating back to um, uh, the 1530s. I want to say uh, was when the Augsburg Confessions were written. I don't remember when the Small Catechism was written. So I don't think that predates it, but I could be wrong on the history there. Well, Martin Luther himself uh, constructed the Small Catechism, right? He? Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, Luther wrote two catechisms that are in these Lutheran confessional documents. The things that make um, the things that make Lutherans Lutheran. Yeah. Um, and the large catechism basically covers the exact same subjects as this small catechism mm-hmm. that was written for children and sure. new converts, illiterate peasants, and whatnot else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just goes through the same subjects, but with a lot more depth. Um, so if you want to know what is the Lutheran teaching of baptism or communion or confession and absolution, mm-hmm. it's the large catechism that has the most detail on those specific things for people. And is that document amendable? Is that what happened? Did they amend it, or did they add a new right. commentary to it that was problematic? Right. So officially, they did not change the text of it. Okay. Uh, I don't even think they retranslated it. We've had the same translation for a while now mm-hmm. that's been perfectly good. Um, it's just that they took two very loosely described um, resolutions that were passed at a convention a while ago, um, and they changed the meaning of them basically because it was a uh, two resolutions one was like we uh want the church to study more on uh how to apply itself to the modern world um right. which could mean anything sure yeah uh, it's basically just a feel-good resolution uh-huh. obviously not quoting verbatim but that's essentially what it amounted to and then there was another resolution that said that uh the church needed new resources to uh bring people into the uh to the confessions more um summarizing those two resolutions that you could go and find for yourself. I probably tweeted about it a few times back when this was the thing going on. Um, And the church, the LCMS, uh, took this to mean, well, we're going to take a copy of the large catechism and we're going to append about 600 pages of modern commentary and explanations to it. Have you read these 600 pages? I 
so yeah, so here's Oh my gosh, Ryan. Wow. And so you read all six hundred pages and then you issued this uh, a response to it pretty much, right? So, um I, I can break that down though, because yeah. it's not as giant of a feat as it sounds. So whole thing was about nine hundred or so pages. Three hundred of that is just the large catechism that uh-huh. I had just gotten done reading uh like at the fall semester of last year. So I that was fresh in my mind. Uh-huh. Um three hundred pages were the actual commentaries and uh uh, descriptions and history and all this other stuff that was appended to it. Some of it was good. Um, like, there was a bunch of stuff that's just like, here's the history of the large catechism sure. in Europe. Like, yeah. I didn't see much problem with it. I doubt anyone so else So wait, would. the LCMS got this mandate yeah. to have, like, a new hip way to make the large catechism accessible to the modern generation, and they issued a 900-page <laughs> tome saying this will... This will get the youngs. I think I think officially, and this kind of just shows how much the mission just shifted over time. So yeah. they created that mandate, yeah. keep in mind. There was no mandate saying, we want a modern large catechism. Right. They said, all right, we're going to make something with a modern application. Yeah. And then at the end, they ended up marketing it towards like seminarians and pastors and all this other yeah. stuff. But um, the way that Lutheran confessions work is that it's not just some secret documents kept in a safe for sure. the ordained. It's yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Um, so... Um, this book, 300 pages of the large catechism, just as normal. 300 pages were the actual essays and editions mm-hmm. uh, that, that were separate, but in the same binding. Mm-hmm. 300 pages were like footnotes and uh, read more material. So that yeah. was easy to go through because it's like a page where it's just double spaced. Citations, yeah. Yeah, citations uh, bibliographies, yeah. and whatever else. So in reality, I was reading 300 actual pages and then 300 more that's just like, you can look here for more. Okay. Um, wasn't wasn't as much as it's uh, as but I even so I mean it's a big you you read through all of that and you you digested it and you saw <laughs> a lot of signs of encroaching wokeness yeah um, what what were some things that you saw that I mean I didn't read your your but what are some examples of things you saw that were indicative that this ideology was taking root in the LCMS right. hierarchy so I was in this group chat with these friends and that's yeah. how I how they got it to me is because it was released online as well as in copy mm-hmm. okay. uh, I did not get the print edition I got the online edition mm-hmm. um thanks to the uh, charity of some of my friends. And they were looking through some of these things, and it was a... um, You could tell by the author's list if uh, you had been keeping up with sort of the inside baseball of the LCMS that this was not a balanced authorship. It's not like they pulled from all sides of the church, conservative, liberal, moderate, whatever else. Like We tried to pretend we don't want to say that out loud, that there are these factions, but that's clearly what it is. Um, it's it's almost like you have multiple synods inside this one Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that very obviously uh, express themselves in different ways. Um, most of these authorships came from the left side. Um, you had, uh, just looking at the authors list without really getting into it just yet, mm-hmm. you had um, the one of the leaders for the Black Clergy Caucus, which is a uh, um, so very liberal in its theology that the guy uh, was defending abortion trying to make like a uh, not necessarily like a politically theological case for it mm-hmm. um, on top of all these other like DEI initiatives and whatever else they was trying to pass off as the true Christian doctrine DEI is diversity equity, equity. inclusion right and this is a Trojan horse for a lot of uh, neo-marxist uh, uh, redri- redistributive um, usually racialized lens interventions and in institutions right uh, heavily egalitarian very uh, non-christian. Uh, just in however it's been used that I always keep seeing. Well, so egalitarian, usually the ideology of egalitarianism is we're all exactly the same, exactly of equal ver. Right. Uh, but you can, from a libertarian perspective, 
be an egalitarian just saying there should be no interventions whatsoever because everybody's of equal worth. DEI says there should be many interventions because people are not currently uh, equitably distributed, so there has to be someone from above that says, you sit down, you stand up, you redistribute. So that's DEI is tied to that whole redistributive intervention uh, from the top down. Uh, Right, and just... To get a short lens so that you understand how it works, for the audience understands how it works. Um, um, the, the libertarian perspective can be described as egalitarian from the point of view of who should we intervene with. Sure. Not necessarily is every single person exactly the same. Any sane person would say obviously not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at the very least, there people are different heights. They have different weights and all sure. this other yeah. stuff. that could Whether or not that has a qualitative right. uh, property obviously humans right. are different from one another. Right. Yes. Whether or not you're using this better, worse language can be uh, a big, but right, we right. are definitely different from one another. Right, exactly. But Christians would, I think, readily affirm all humans are equally inhabiting God's image. We are equal yes. inhabitors of the, imagers of God. Yes, yes, you're all yeah. going to be judged come judgment day. There's not going to be an exemption for anyone or a right. uh, even necessarily a worse, worse sentence than what is deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the DEI types will not look at it as who do we intervene for. They look at it as all people need to be made equal, uh, sort of like a Harrison Bergeron type of story where uh, that's a Kurt Vonnegut short story. Yeah, it's an excellent um, short story. A dystopian future yeah. where um, everybody has to be reduced to the worst state so that right. we're all equal. So yeah. there's an Ubermensch character who um, is given terrible glasses so he yeah. can barely see. He's wearing weights everywhere yeah. so that he can't move. Uh, so he, everybody is co-equal, and then it ends right. with him getting shot while flying around by a shotgun. Right, so. exactly. Um, it's literally... It's uh, an excellent story. It's egalitarianism by handicapping everyone down to the lowest common denominator. Very good, yes. Which, yeah. um, that's where the DEI types are. Um, people that might still call themselves egalitarians probably won't agree with that, um, but that's that's where these other people are coming from. So that was this... This one guy was an author, pushes all of the sure. DEI initiatives and all this other stuff, um, I don't know if he's quite at the Harrison Bergeron levels of uh, force everyone well, to be equal, so like, but no one, no one <laughs> on the progressive DEI is going to say we need to only push down so that we can all have equality. Mm-hmm. Usually, they will. This notion of equity is we will help some a lot, help some a little, leave some alone, and actually right. hurt some others, and then a rising tide floats all boats is what they would say and right. believe that we will reach this glorious future where we realize the kingdom all together through this intervention mm-hmm. of church and state and other institutions. And then as people like Jordan Peterson point out, is the only way to realistically make everyone equal is a nuclear apocalypse. Right, exactly. You know, it's to tear everybody down. So there's this very nice sounding ideology mm-hmm. that's taken root in the West and been around for 150 years at least and then every time it tries to be implemented, it right. does result in not not a rising of the tide, right. but a lowering right, of the yeah. tide. And we just refuse to learn from history. Right. Uh, one might even say mass terror. <laughs> we, if we wanted to be, yes, a little dramatic yeah. about it, sure. Uh, so, But um, you had a bunch of authors that are right. spouting this like, DEI stuff. Like, that's one guy. Um, there were a few other people that weren't even in the LCMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were in other Lutheran denominations like the aforementioned Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, um, the very left-leaning one that, like, woke preacher clips will sometimes throw out there and say, look at this Lutheran pastor. Oh, but you've seen a lot of stuff like right. this. I yes. mean, this isn't really surprising or right. shocking to see at this point because, I mean, this is an ideology that's made its home in a, in a right. lot of churches, including yep. 
Yeah, so let's let's so let's put a pin in where we are in the the history that we're in. We need to go back in time and learn about Missouri Synod. Yeah. Did it break away from ELCA? Did ELCA break away from them? How did how did things? Okay. I don't know this history, right. and I should. So, um, I'll try to be as brief as possible because mm-hmm. I can be very verbose on this topic. All um, right, good luck. So, um, Lutheranism in America. Um, America is a gigantic place. So, sure. just to start off there. So, whenever you have all these different Lutheran colonists coming over. Um, they're not all going to, one, speak the same language, and they're not from the same home country, and two, they're not going to necessarily be next to each other. So the very first Lutherans would be Swedes that were on the East Coast and the uh, Swedish colonies there. Uh, first speaker of the house was Lutheran. Um, these people, um, I think, kind of turned into pietists is what they would be called now, um, eventually. Um, so that's like one group. They don't really do much other than that early political influence. Uh, obviously, the first Speaker of the House of Representatives is a pretty big title, but that's kind of what this first group is known for. Um, eventually, you're going to get German immigrants in the St. Louis area, uh, New Bremen, I believe it was called. Um, these would be coming from Silesia, uh, Pomerania, Saxony, this sort of a eastern, more conservative part of Germany that refused to go along with what was called the Prussian Union of Churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Prussian Union of Churches, just for people that don't know. Um, very vulgar summary is that the uh, king in Prussia um, wanted to commune with his wife. Uh, the king was a Calvinist, the wife was a Lutheran, so he issued an edict uh, requiring that all Calvinists and Lutheran churches in Prussia form into one union with one united confession. Or No, not united confession, because they could believe the different things, but they would have to commune each other and all this other stuff. Uh, that breaks Lutheran theology because uh, communion in Lutheran theology declares that you have the same confession as those you're communing directly with. Huh. Um, so these people that ended up in Missouri, formed the Missouri Synod eventually, um, were the sort of uh, traditionalists that did not want to stay under that regime, so when, they came over here. When was that? Um, I believe that they would have come over here in like the 1830s. So Missouri 1830s. Synod as an institution, as a unique unit, mid-19th century. Early to mid-19th century, and uh, people can find this more elsewhere, but this is just to get the history established. And at that point, was their identity, we're standing against some cultural left-leaning force, or is it more just like, we're standing for what we've always stood for? Um, It would be a combination of both, um, and that's due to the influence of the guy that would establish himself as the first president. He was very very much a hardcore conservative, Mm -hmm. um, so much so that he wrote against things like abolitionism and all this other things that he called secular humanism, fancy word for leftism uh, at that point in time. Um, So that's in Missouri. All the way up north in Wisconsin, you had a different group of Lutherans that would form what's called the Wisconsin Synod. Um, These are still two separate organizations. They did not start that way because they they still around, the Wisconsin Synod? Really? I've never heard of them. Um, They're considered the more conservative one because they don't let women vote still and all this other stuff. There's more conservative Lutherans than the Missouri Synod? Uh, Far more. Uh, I didn't know this. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Are there any of them down here in Oklahoma? Uh, very few. Okay. Uh, very, very few. I think there's like two Wisconsin churches in the whole state. Okay. Um, and even then, it's just nominal. We can get into that. I don't know how much time we have. So. Well, yeah, let me ask. So the Missouri Synod, you don't have female clergy, right? Correct. But females can vote in governing right. bodies. Yes. Okay. And then Wisconsin Synod, they don't even let women vote. Correct. Okay. Um, which used to be the Missouri position until I think like the 60s or so. So okay. it's not unfounded. It's not unknown. It's not like they did something crazy. So then the ELCA, does that play on the same level okay. as Missouri Synod, 
Wisconsin Senate, or is that a whole other thing? So the ELCA was a merger. It was formed. Uh, there were all so those were the two big conservative senates, Missouri and Wisconsin. Yeah. There were also other Lutheran churches, some of which formed as a result of those early Swedish Lutherans. Um, there was the American Lutheran Church, which was uh, much more liberal. Um, they were one of the first ones to start ordaining women, for instance, um, uh, and while staying Lutheran uh, mm-hmm. in its uh, tradition and outlook. Um, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in the 70s, uh, basically the liberals from the St. Louis Seminary uh, left, all but I think five of them from the whole seminary, just vacated all the professors. Um, they formed their own uh, seminary in exile, which turned into its own minor synod in exile. So this like breakaway, mm-hmm. the American Lutheran Church and I think a couple of other uh, bodies more liberal leaning formed to this uh, evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and that was uh, around what time? I think that would be the early eighties. I think the around 1980s. that time. Oh, okay. Around that, it's a very recent. Body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's either the late seventies or the eighties. I want to say. And so this um, is the ELCA would be considered part of the mainline church tradition, not Missouri Synod. Correct. Yeah. So, so, but Missouri Synod, you already made reference to the fact that there are factions within the Missouri Synod. It's not as though there's a monoculture that leans right. right. Rather, there are centrists and liberals within the Missouri Synod right. as well. Yeah, if you want, so this is where we can actually distinguish the two now that I've threw them out there. Uh, the Wisconsin Synod is much more monocultural. Is it? Um, which means that it also has much less of a defense if it starts to lean leftward. Uh, the factions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, as bad as they are for Christians to have, uh, does mean you at least get a couple of good ones. Um, so there are more conservative types of both low church and high church varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also more liberal types of both her, uh, low church and high church varieties. So um, you get that sort of uh, distinction right? Um, that's been around at the very least since the 2000s mm-hmm. um, because that breakaway faction in the 70s, uh, the liberal types, they mm-hmm. tended to be much more high church. They were much more historically minded, yeah. uh, which is sort of the opposite of what it is today. Usually if you're historically minded in high church, you'll get branded as a conservative or a yeah. crypto-Catholic or something, uh, which is... Yeah, you're, so the the areas of overlap you and I have is I, I, I am on the YouTube sphere, and I know a lot of history, mm-hmm. but you're in the Twitter sphere much more than I am, <laughs> and you know a lot of that lingo that I don't. Right. So crypto-Catholic would be some, like, wannabe Catholic. Right. That, I mean, that's a really old charge going back to the Reformation, but that's basically um, if uh, there was these... Uh, I'm sure you would... Hidden crypto is hidden, right? Yeah, crypto would be yeah. hidden or tendencies or something so like you're that. A, so you're, you're like a closeted Catholic. That, that's what the accusation would be. Uh, it goes back to the Reformation. <laughs> if you're high church. Yeah. Yeah, okay, um, that makes sense. Okay, that's so... That's a big holdover from like the worship wars. So if yeah. you were saying we want the hymnal and organ, I yeah. mean, that's basically crypto-Catholicism. It's uh-huh. not like we've been doing that for 400 years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to accept the synthesizer and whatever else. That, yeah, the that's fog how machine, laser used. light show. Yeah, right. yeah. Get with that, the times, man. Yeah, that's how it would be used. Is that you would be accused of being okay. crypto Catholic for being, you know, forty years traditionalist? Man, my <laughs> audience, I really feel for you guys. You're learning so many words and terms today. I just, you know, if you need to hit the pause button, go take a take a shower. Um, okay, <laughs> so so let's come back to your story because you're making your way through these new three hundred pages of doctrine much mm-hmm. of which was uh, authored by the left-leaning faction within the LCMS. You and your buddies were talking through this. You saw a number of signs of creeping wokeism. What what did you highlight? Well, some of it wasn't so creeping. Some of it was explicit. Just overt, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and once again, that's not to say, um, 
a good chunk of these authors were not part of that left-wing faction. It's just there was a very underrepresentation of like conservative types yeah. and a massive overrepresentation of a so like we had the Black Clergy Caucus just very briefly there's a group called Lutherans for Racial Justice. Mm-hmm. Should be a massive giveaway right in the name. They were authoring quite a few of the essays as well. Um so that that's who you're working with, the massive sort of left-wing representation in the authorship including a pastor from the ELCA you had pastors from the North American Lutheran Church, getting a bit crazy, but these guys broke off from the ELCA, which is from that clip that we just watched, I would presume. If it's not from the clip we just watched, they are functionally identical. Yeah, uh, They ordain women still. They're still sort of lefty, mm-hmm. um, but they thought that ordaining homosexuals was a step too far, and so they split off. Um, from the ELCA. Right. Because the ELCA does ordain uh, gay folk. Yeah, they'll just ordain anyone at this point. So, yeah. um, In fact, the more strange, the better. They get more news articles that way. Yeah. Uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber, is she ELCA? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So um, I have you talked about that with your audience? No, okay. no, I'm not going to do Nadia. Okay. She, just, she <laughs> makes me feel like i got to take a shower, man. Right, yeah. Understandably so. Well, so. we need to camp out for a second because... Yeah. And, uh, the the racial justice and the black caucus you're you're going over that as though an audience will know what to make of that okay yeah. i'm not and i don't presume to know your thoughts on mm-hmm. I, there is clearly an overlap between dei stuff and racial stuff that yeah. The the belief that i have is just because you're black or a non white person does not mean that you are on board with right. DEI stuff, or right. that you—that usually uh, what happens in these institutions is that racial justice gets used as a cudgel yep. for leftism, right. and so you have this notion that if you really are of this demographic, this POC demographic, if you really are black, if you really are gay, you will hold these—you will hold a certain family of beliefs that lean right. left, and um, so they 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 take token. I don't know if that's offensive to say, but token people of those demographics throw money at them, organize them, and say you represent all the black people right. from this left. So when so you can kind of reliably in these different denominations. The exception would be in the United Methodist Church. Yes, you have a black caucus group that largely leans left, and yes, you have a women's group, but you have a an Asian group, an East Asian right. group right. full of Koreans. It's like no, we're traditionalists, right. you know, and don't don't use us for that. But generally speaking, when you do find, uh, not just in the Methodists, not just with the Lutherans, but anywhere, when you mobilize a, a racial minority group to advocate for racial minority values, right. yep. there's a heavy instruct, uh, incentive structure towards leftism. Yes, exactly. So okay. when, when I say that the Black Clergy Caucus and Lutherans for Racial Justice are leftists, that's not because all blacks or all anyone talking about race are leftists. Right. Um, it's because that's how they've just demonstrated themselves to be okay. uh, through their own actions. Uh, okay. Uh, that's a whole, we can spend hours on that. I, yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm I'm satisfied. Okay. So, yeah. but there there are these different constituency groups that have yep. authors that have written in this yep. piece that are overtly proclaiming doctrine that is against right traditional Lutheran understandings or even Christian understandings. So we'll, Very good. we can okay. get into that. Sure. Um, so uh, the there were uh, essays in there just titled like a Lutheran perspective on social justice. Um, there you go. Which yeah. is a very big buzzword. Uh, sure. Yeah, you know, that's a. Um, there was a famous Austrian writer, F. A. Hayek. He wrote against social justice in the 1970s because he saw it as being so uh, um, ubiquitous at that point in time. And basically, his point was this is a leftist cudgel being used to uh, 
say, if you don't come along with our cause of social justice, you don't care about people, you're yeah. a hateful bigot. Yeah, if um, you don't do it our way, then right. yeah, you're a bigot. And at the same time, attaching social to the word justice just completely sucks the meaning out of it. There is no justice in social justice, uh, quite uh, paradoxically. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the uh, Lutherans for Racial Justice, one of those guys, I think, wrote this essay. Um, so, you know, he, he went completely on board with this. Um, just just as an example, and it was a it's not like he was critiquing it or anything. He was basically arguing in this whole essay, how can we incorporate the modern doctrines of social justice into a Lutheran framework? Yeah, just taking it for granted right. that that has everybody's on board with right. that, yeah. or should be on board with yeah. it. Which is even if you're not, you're a bad person. Yeah. So we have that in there. Um, there was a uh, there was a quite famously there was a paragraph in one of these social justice essays um, where the guy made the claim that gentrification is a sin. Great. Okay. Which. Um, and the way he was arguing that was that if you increase your neighbor's property value and you can ha you cause him to incur more of like a property tax or something, mm -hmm. then you are robbing your neighbor because yeah. you've increased his property sure. tax, yeah. um, which is absolutely insane to claim. Um, and he would be making the exact opposite point if he was living in a neighborhood where there was zero gentrification and or white flight. And white flight. Yeah. So if, he, if that was in his neighborhood, he would be saying that leaving the neighborhood would be a sin and they yeah. should be gentrifying which yeah. so there's you can't no stay, there. you can't right. leave you have to stay and stay poor <laughs> right yeah but no more poorer than your neighbor but no more richer than right. your neighbor yeah okay so this whole cockamamie scheme is insane there's no winning here the whole thing is very clearly just from that one contradiction just a cudgel being used to say go along with our narrative or else yeah um so that made it into these uh, explanations yeah uh, once again the explanations are not the catechism they were just Appended in the same binding, so it's. But it's a, it's official, denominational published material. Yes, yes, they published it and reaffirmed it, which we can get to that in a second. Now, um, now we got to we got to fast forward through okay, this, man, because yeah, yeah, I'm much more it. interested in what happened after this. So let me summarize. Yeah, yeah. You published was it just on Twitter or was it through Mises or Twitter? Okay, Twitter. on Twitter you published a public critique criticism, uh, naming how out of line right. this was, and then. Somehow the Twitterverse interfered with your real life, <laughs> where they let your pastor know, mm -hmm. and several elders in the LCMS created a, an orchestrated intervention where they used the tenor of lovingly caring for you because you had come under the sway of mm -hmm. these far-right... Um, um, did they use alt-right? They used alt-right. Okay, alt-right Twitter thinkers... There was some kind of hit piece that was published about you by Antifa yes. that got into their hands, and then they confronted you. Man, and so, yeah, let me summarize just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I love you is because <laughs> you had the temerity and the clarity to know that you couldn't trust these guys, to know that they were under the sway of larger powers and principalities, mm -hmm. and that they would... Well, and apparently there's already some drama going on with some other people, and you can talk about that in a second because I'm interested in that. I'm interested in all of it. But you knew that <laughs> you couldn't count on them to honestly report what they said to you. They created these environments where you were surrounded by hostile people, and you recorded that, and you have sound bites that you put out on Twitter yes. to, to show the farce that this was. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, there are several things that you notice about how leftism works whenever it takes over institutions. One is it only punches right. It yep. doesn't ever punch left. Right. It, it claims to be in the center. It only punches right. It never punches left. Right. So 
in the midst of all this, you routinely said, are you correcting anyone on the left who is guilty of espousing problematic leftist views? And they're going, we're just talking about you right now, which is very convenient for them. Right, exactly. other stuff you'll find is they will gang up on you. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden you feel like you're the one taking crazy pills. You're the extreme one in the room. That, so what what happened that I thought you not only shared what they said, but you and your father published several um, rebuttals talking about how my I My father lied. did. Yeah, I don't remember what I said. Yeah. Brother? Uh, but, your yeah, just father. My father. You, oh, it's just your father. You didn't. No. Okay, so your father's defended you publicly as an elder, and then you, you've defended yourself on Twitter. Well, eventually. So um, it, it, just to, uh, yeah, just add, to iron that whole story out do, just a yeah. little bit. Um, that, so that... Those things that I published, the critiques, there was, I think, like seven or 18 of them. Um, 17 so, or 18. Yeah, okay. uh, and I was taking, like, screenshots of, like, two or three paragraphs, highlighting the problems. Yeah. It wasn't out of context by any stretch of the meaning. Um, that got a lot of traction. Um, the president, When you say a lot of traction, it just got reposted on Twitter a lot? Um, it, it got a lot of views on Twitter, and it got a lot of people sharing it in real life, so people would uh, show it to different pastors and all mm-hmm. these other types. There was a giant letter-writing campaign that started up as a result of ah. it, um, and a bunch of other people were just commenting on it from like outside of Twitter, people that I had no way of connecting to, so... There was some chain of uh, communications yeah. here that just took off naturally. So as LCMS, of, as of January, this article that I'm reading, it was uh, uh, the view count is not shown, but in the above uh, above embedded thing, but uh, the count is currently 260 thousand in <laughs> January. So, so yeah. yeah, that got pretty big. Yeah, I imagine there were a lot of headaches for LCMS higher ups. Well, originally it sounded like yes, but the impression that I was given originally was that it was headaches directed towards the people that wrote these things and not towards me. So this is a big thing that happened. Is uh, Originally I was given communications from the higher-ups that they were sort of like onside. Um, they were saying, you did good work and whatever else, and we're going to get this pulled. You were getting attaboys. I, okay. I, I was, so it was a very favorable thing, and then finally... On like the Monday after I post all this, I think I started January 21st was a Saturday afternoon. I think I published it. Monday they pulled it, and I was told ahead of time by people in the higher ups that they were going to pull this catechism. Yeah, got congratulated. The guy still thought that I was anonymous because he couldn't believe that Turnip Seed was a real name. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was a fun conversation. Everyone was sort of happy. They pulled this for about like eight or nine days, I think. Um, and then at the beginning of February, uh, the Senate president put the catechism and all of its uh, commentaries back out. And not only did he do that, put it back out for publication, he said um, all of the online criticisms were wrong, um, they were taken out of context, they were hateful, and we affirm everything in this. Who said this? Who uh, this, this was the Senate president. So That's the guy the that leads the denomination. One. Yeah, uh, Matthew Harrison, uh, who just got reelected by a margin of like 2%. So take for that what you will. Um, How old is he? I don't know. Where does he serve? Uh, he would be in St. Louis. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he, he put this back out there. Okay. And then, like, a couple weeks later, I think, because I was at dinner for my grandma's birthday, and I got my phone just started blowing up, and they're like, hey, you need to look at this, you know, the classic cliche. Um, and they were uh, showing me this uh, this letter that had gone out from Matthew Harrison, this president, And it was this giant screed where he was calling for the excommunication of the alt-right. And 
normally I'd just be like, well, that's sort of stupid. No one's used the term alt-right seriously for like five years at this point. Yeah. Why, why would you resurrect that term? Yeah. Um, and then I read through it, and he was uh, saying that the origins of the catechism controversy stemmed from the alt-right. And so <sighs> at this point, so you and I are going to talk more off-camera mm -hmm. later because... I'm only sort of aware of a lot of these personalities and conversations that have been taking place over time. I, I know about Mobius Moldbug and... Menchus, yeah. Oh, thank you. Not Mobius, <laughs> Menchus Moldbug, and uh, I've heard his real name. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are... So, briefly, in American public life, people who claim to be right-leaning or conservative generally are still, when you look at the broad span of ideology, mm -hmm. quite far left. Yeah. There is this actual thing called the right, which is very foreign to American public discourse that has a number of ideas that are disturbing to many. When you listen to them, you realize there's some actual thought to it. There's some actual reasoning. However, it is threatening to the current social order. And so there's this catch-all term, alt-right, which we're made to, to interpret as just, these are Nazis, they're evil people. You right. can't listen to them. You can't legitimate their ideas. It's a what, slur. Whether or not that's true, that, that it leads to Nazism, what the result is, is there are people who will have these conversations, who will, who will talk openly about them, that are instantly, uh, if you talk to them, you are no good. Mm -hmm. If you platform them, if you, so you in tw on Twitter, as a young man interested in big ideas, have spoken publicly with people who speak publicly about these things, mm -hmm. whether or not you've actually... Um, agreed with them. I, I don't know how public you've been about what particular beliefs you agree with that are considered I mean, not I've, acceptable today. And we don't need to for right, right, right now. Right, yeah. I mean, I, just for the record, I voice my disagreements all the time. So I've, it's so not, you, not like I've been showing the, uh, giving an impression of like uh, unanimity and ideas or something. It's a quite a sane, uh, insane accusation to say that I've just been fully sucked into the alt-right, which was one of the claims made against me. So you have publicly, in dialogue with these guys, said, I think you're off base here. Yeah, yeah. I think, so you're not Multiple just, times, yes. Yeah, you're not some <laughs> young man going, ooh, you're saying <laughs> exciting, offensive things, and I'm going to sign on for this because I just love offending people. Right. You're, you're going, no, I'll have a conversation mm -hmm. with you. I understand. Here's what I can affirm. Here's areas I really disagree with. And right. so, yeah, in the recordings with those guys, you're going, wait, you're saying I have to disavow. Who do I have to disavow? What specific yeah. beliefs do I have right. to disavow? They didn't want to do that because they haven't listened to that stuff. They don't comprehend that stuff. They just know you entered into a world with people that they don't like, right. ideas that are not socially acceptable. LCMS has to stay out of that world. We have, you're not clergy. You're just a lay person, but you're a lay person who uh, publicly spoke about the institution, has dipped yeah. your toes into this world, and they cannot have that world anywhere close. So that's why the head of this group wrote this mm -hmm. screed against yep. the alt-right. It's to make clear you have committed the unpardonable sin of modern American right. public life. Right, exactly. You've, you've gone too far to the right. And I'll be very quick here just to blitz through this. Please. Um, yeah. To make your point about how far to the left even so-called conservatives today are. Yeah. Um, if you can imagine such a time in the 1940s, uh, the right wing was so non-interventionist in its policies that it didn't believe we should get involved in World War II. Mm -hmm. That's, that would be an insanely right-wing position. Today, you would get fired immediately if yeah. you said that. That was, yeah. that was where the right was in the U.S. just a few decades ago. Yeah. Um, they were extremely socially conservative as well. They, they believed in obscenity laws and blasphemy laws and all these other things that we had before the Civil Rights Act. You know, 
that's a insanely right wing position today. Oh, you mm -hmm. want to get rid of the Civil Rights Act? You're a racist, irredeemable bigot. Mm -hmm. But that that's just a uh, that's where things were just a few decades ago. That's how yeah. far to the left even a lot of people are today. Um, and then, so that letter was put out by the president of the LCMS. Well, you can't you can't say what you just said. I, I got to protect us from people going. These are two white guys having a racist <laughs> conversation. Right. There are people on the right who make the case quite compellingly that legislation like the Civil Rights Act mm -hmm. actually hurt right. ethnic minorities yes. in this country. That to stand against the civil rights movement does not mean I don't care about mm -hmm. blacks and they can right. go rot. It's I do care about black folks and all people, and they do not thrive whenever you have this kind of intervention right. here. If so you, this if, is not two white guys sitting down going, uh, we don't care about black people. This is two uh, people that are trying to be thoughtful going, yep. something's gone wrong in America for the last 150 years. We have a fundamental misunderstanding that comes down to anthropology right. and the role of the state. Mises yep. uh, Institute, this is not, if you watch this and you're just going, these guys are a couple of racists. I can't help you. That's not what we're. That's not what I'm about. I don't think that's what you're no, about. Not, not so. But the um, the the thing here was that LCMS tried to make it out that you right. were friendly with these racist types. So go ahead. Now. On, on yeah. that point about the Civil Rights Act and yes. two white guys talking about it, if you want a uh, prominent <laughs> right. non-white talking about it, uh, uh -huh. Thomas Sowell in his early Isn't research, he great? yeah, uh, in his early research was much more radical and hardline against integration. Yeah. Um, so this is a black who saw firsthand, um, you know, what a poor community can do to everyone in it. Um, and he was against the Civil Rights Act basically from the get-go in his earliest research, mm -hmm. arguing Thomas Sowell, black yeah. American, arguing in favor of some of the Jim Crow laws because he was saying that the opposite is just going to hurt black families, which if you look in the modern day, it seems like he might have predicted something. Oh, sure. Um, because he was saying that all these... Uh, all these initiatives that were brought about because of the Civil Rights Act, like the Great Society, mm -hmm. were just going to dissolve fatherhood within the black community and, and even the white community. And it Both did. things came to pass. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's that's your non-white if you think that we're just a bunch of racists. You can go and call him a racist and sort of break your uh, internal logic. Well, or but, like Larry Elder, the black face <laughs> right. of white supremacy. Yeah, so right. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what ideology does. It makes it so you can't really hear... Right. You just have the virtue signaling to one side or the other, and then the caricatures that people right. gladly put you into. So that's you were, exactly right. You were getting caricatured, and you were you were getting pigeonholed into this uh, white racist um, framework that that the the president was using the musculature mm -hmm. of the denomination to then leverage yep. against you and silence any voices that might sim be sympathetic to you. Right. Um, and that completely breaks how the LCMS is organized, just so that people understand. We are Congregationalist in our structure. The congregations are supposed to be the ones to determine if they should look into excommunicating someone, if they should excommunicate someone, and then they do it if they determine that that's the proper procedure. They, they work this out on that level. To have the president issue an announcement saying, get these guys... That's an insane power grab that he shouldn't have been able to do. That's executive overreach. Right? If you want to put it that way, yes, yeah. that's exactly what it is. So, How common is excommunication in the Lutheran <laughs> tradition? I mean, I ask some of the older guys that I know because that's I could potentially be facing that. Um, and they said they could probably count on their hand and like their decades of being in the LCMS, the times that someone had even tried to have been excommunicated. So... Like, and is that when they when they enter this formal process, how often is that against a lay person versus clergy? Do you know? I do not know. I, I think usually it's just typically the only times that a, a uh, congregation has excommunicated someone 
has been because they've done something obscene. Yeah. Um, they tried to justify it and they refuse to back down. Um, everyone thinks that they're absolutely insane. They have like no supporters. They've tried every last option available to them. They keep trying to get them to show up to church. Yeah. And then finally they say, all right, we can't say that you're still a Lutheran or even really a Christian. We mm. want to help you, but we can't do that. So we're excommunicating you. Yeah. Not quite what's been happening here. Well, they've been trying to... So, um, who was I talking to? Oh, there was a guy in East Ohio. They wanted to kick him and his uh, congregation out of a church building and and Mm -hmm. absorb it into the East Ohio Annual Conference. So what they did was they created this phony uh, Conversations at the Cross process Mm -hmm. um, where they created a paper trail that made it look like they just weren't cooperating. They just weren't doing anything. Right. And this is one of the things that institutions do. Rather than just uh, overtly behave as autocrats, they create a phony system where right. they can say, well, we tried to work with you. We tried to correct you. And you hear them doing that with you in these recordings of, we're just trying to take care of you. We're just trying to, to minister to you. So they're making you sound like this problem person. <laughs> and where if you defend yourself at all, if you're saying, can you tell me where you got these resources? Can you tell me any specifics of what you're alleging right. against me? Yeah. Can you tell me the specifics of what you want from me? All of that is seen as he's being defensive. He's really, you know, he's just not responding mm-hmm. well to, to church discipline so that eventually they can say, you know, we, we need to wash our hands of you. We've, yeah, we've right. tried, Ryan. Right. So, uh, 